I'm Jane Pauley, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. We're in rainy London, taking in the sights and looking ahead to the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle this coming Saturday. And we're beginning here at Tower Bridge, completed in 1894, a monument of Britain's Victorian age. 2,000 years and more of history have helped shape the world's view of Britain and its people. But just how accurate are all those lingering images? Mark Phillips has been looking into that. Doesn't always go to plan now. If you think you know what life is like in the upper reaches of British society these days, ask the Duke of Richmond. Can you make a living as a Duke these days? Well, <laughs> I don't think you can. My Lord's seated. The image of Britain, once based on the crown, owes as much these days to the crown, the TV show. How fast do you need before you pop it? Britain, it's not what you think. Coming up on Sunday morning. Who's the biggest and most loyal fan of the British royal family? Quite possibly, the one Lee Cowan will be taking us to meet. On the eve of this Saturday's big royal wedding, we had a question for self-proclaimed royalist Anita Atkinson. This was the Queen's wedding anniversary. Whose home is a shrine to all things British. So what do you think it is about Americans that are so fascinated with the royal family? I don't know. I really don't know. No? You could have kept us. <laughs> she keeps everything, and we mean everything. The queen of royal collectibles. Britannia! Ahead on Sunday morning. We'll have those stories and more when this special edition of Sunday Morning continues. Londinium, as it was known in Roman times, has for centuries, even millennia, been at the historic heart of the world. From castles to commerce to culture to art, music, and more. The sun has truly never set on the British Empire. This morning, we go exploring. Westminster Abbey, home to coronations and royal weddings, is one face of Britain, but there are many others. With Mark Phillips, we go in search of the real Britain. It's easy to think you know what Britain's all about. It's about a small 92-year-old woman with a ready smile and a taste for big hats. My Lord's pretty seated. Some of them really big. It's about two young men, one of them with a growing family. The other about to marry an American TV star. And if you watch much TV, it's also about the crown. The show, not the hat. 
And it's about big houses like Downton Abbey with lords and ladies. Who pays for it? Oh, good. Let's talk about money. And all the little people who fuss below stairs to serve them. And it's all more or less wrong. One of the things that people come here to do is it would just die. Life at the top of the British social food chain isn't what it used to be. Just ask Charles Gordon Lennox, also known as the 11th Duke of Richmond, the 11th Duke of Lennox, the 11th Duke of Aubigny, the 6th Duke of Gordon. All the titles in the world won't get your bleeding car to start. How fast do you need before you pop it? It may still sometimes take the help of the common folk to get the old 1934 AC Roadster and the show on the road, but a lot has changed around here. When people have an image of life near the top of the social scale in Britain, it tends to come from what they've seen on TV. Do you see yourself in that tradition? I hope a lot more uh, progressive than that. Can you make a living as a duke these days? Well, <laughs> I don't think you can. But you can try. And boy, do they try on the Duke's Goodwood estate that sprawls over 12,000 lush acres of southern England. The place has been in the family for 321 years, if you're counting. What the Duke's family counts are the pennies. You know, to cut the lawn costs half a million a year or something. You know, how are we going to drive the revenue that's going to, that's going to cover that? The Queen was accompanied by the how? By turning what used to be a playground for aristocrats into a kind of sporting park with an aristocratic theme. At the annual horse race meeting here, the finish line is really the bottom line. The old car racetrack has been refurbished to its former glory and is driven by the income it provides. Other income comes from the old World War II airfield, now a private airport, and that's not even to mention the golf courses or the old mansion and its jaw-dropping art collection that tells more than three centuries of family history. This is part of the motivation for keeping a place like this going. You don't want to be the guy to mess it up at the <laughs> you end. You don't want to be the one to mess it up. No, you're absolutely right. And, both and if Britain has changed at what used to be the top, it's changed a lot. So there's a lot. It's also changed at what used to be the bottom. The only difference between white working class and Asian working class is that one of us loves chicken tikka masala and the other is Asian. All right, that's the only difference. Are you white or Asian? Tez Ilias, whose family immigrated from Pakistan, is now an up-and-coming comedian who does a nice line in challenging what it means to be British today. Do you think that's a surprise to people who aren't from here, that Britain isn't the way that they perhaps think it is? I think a lot of Americans understand Britain as well through our music, television and film. And in this country, we haven't been so good at representing our wider ethnic diversity as America has been. Why is it that when Alex grows a beard, he's a sexy lumberjack, but when Tez grows a beard, you have to ask him questions? The old stuff, the stiff upper lip stuff. Not, not all, that, all that's gone out the window. The upstairs, downstairs no, thing. No, all that's gone, yeah. Too many stairs. It's a lot, think of Britain is a lot like America, just significantly smaller and with less guns. Britain is becoming more like America. The numbers tell the story. Around 14% of the British population is now foreign-born. That's almost the identical percentage as the United States. There's a famous 
bagel bakery here, but there used to be lots. As historian Simon Sharma says, immigration is not new. The east end of London, like the Lower East Side of New York, has seen waves of immigration for centuries. The signs are South Asian now, but before that, Jews, Irish, even French Huguenot Protestants fleeing persecution have come through here. In the post-World War II era, immigrants were recruited from the Caribbean to fill a labor shortage. And lately, they've come from Eastern Europe. Migrants from Poland now make up Britain's largest immigrant group. It's very kind of serious for us, whether you actually think of Britain as sort of permanently self-portrayed as white, middle or upper class, essentially a Britain kind of like a fly trapped in the amber, Downton Amber, really, you know, we can call it. And that's not healthy for any society at all. Britain's got to have a future. But, but to do that, it has to understand its past. We spoke to Simon Sharma in what was once a synagogue, now part of a museum of immigration and diversity, where Susie Symes is a trustee. These were empty islands once, mm. and people have been coming here for centuries. If Buckingham Palace is part of the British story, you're saying this little house in the east end of London is just as much a part. It's just as much a part as Buckingham Palace, and Buckingham Palace is just as much a home to migrant kings and queens <laughs> over the years. Understanding the past, dropping the myths, and adapting to have a future. Lessons the 11th Duke of Richmond has already learned. Back to the house. In the run-up to the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, True Blue fans of the royal family are easy to spot. But few can rival the one our Lee Cowan discovered out in the English countryside. It's pretty hard to miss, nestled in the rolling hills of County Durham in northeastern England. A rather conspicuous Union Jack fluttering in the wind, as if the farmhouse below was Buckingham Palace itself. It's the home of Anita Atkinson, Yes. a 61-year-old grandmother of three who, although not born into royalty, has become the UK's queen of royal memorabilia. Every day I think about the queen, which is really sad, isn't it? Do you really? Yeah, yeah I do. She's a patriotic pack rat. There isn't a nook or cranny in her house that isn't home to a British bobble. Commemorative tins jam the bookshelves. Her bedsheets are bright enough to wake the dead. And there are enough collectible teacups for all the tea in China. Is it fair to say that this is pretty much an obsession for you? Yes, it's a complete obsession. It is. It's not all she thinks about. She does have a job, after all. She's the editor of the local newspaper, the Weirdale Gazette. You'll notice she bangs out her stories on a Union Jack computer right next to her Union Jack telephone, which, perhaps not surprisingly rings with God Save the Queen. Hello, She didn't collect it all herself. Much of it was given to her, some by complete strangers who heard of her royal passion. And eventually, the only place left to put it all was up in Anita's attic. Right up here, there's another three and a half thousand items up the loft. Three and a half thousand? Yeah. Oh, That's a that. carrier bag. 
from the 1981 Royal Wedding. Pencil from the Coronation. This one is a, a Bell's Whiskey. Oh, wow. Hasn't got any whiskey in it now. Do, Did you drink do, the whiskey? No, I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> hey, I'm silly enough without drinking alcohol. <laughs> Anita's ever-patient husband worried that her collection might one day come crashing right through the ceiling. So he cleaned out an old dairy barn so that she could make it her own personal museum. She couldn't wait to show it to us, but only after she changed into something, well, a bit more British. Welcome to Royal Teas. I'm really severely underdressed. Inside, carefully arranged to the rafters, are some 3,000 pieces of everything. Is there anything you won't collect? No, I collect anything. <laughs> There's a box of tissues from, <laughs> from 1977. There's a cup and saucer from 1817, memorializing the death of Princess Charlotte of Wales. Bobby pins from Queen Elizabeth's 1953 coronation. But this one's even rarer. And a mug celebrating the last royal wedding with one whopping mistake. And when it arrived from China, it had Harry on it. <laughs> Instead of William, but it says there, Will and Kate, and it's not, it's Harry and Kate. <laughs> it's not the largest collection of royal memorabilia, but it used to be, at least according to Guinness World Records, back in 2003. Right next to the largest chamber pot collection, the largest, I don't know whether you can say this, but the largest condom collection, but it's in there. To have a Guinness World Record, you've got to be mad. So if everybody who's in the Guinness Book of World Records is a little mad, yeah. you, you think you're a little mad? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. <laughs> when word spread of this curiously British barn, people started coming around to see it. Anita never intended it to be public, but last year she opened her doors, even offering those who book ahead afternoon tea. Her loyalty to the royals extends to much more than just kitsch. In 2011, she camped out for four days outside Westminster Abbey to get a front row seat to that wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. Years earlier, she found herself in an event at St. James's Palace, where, to her surprise, she actually met the Queen Mother. I did the curtsy and she said, oh, how very nice it is to meet you, Anita. I thought, Queen Mother's calling me by my first name. <laughs> and then... It just suddenly struck me that both my grandfathers were coal miners and my dad was a bus driver. And I thought, here I am, talking to the Queen Mother like she's my best friend. I thought, who do you think you are? Never, never forget it, I guess. No, it was one of the best days of my life. Takes a pretty major life event to keep Anita away from royal pomp and circumstance. In 1981, when Prince Charles married Lady Diana, Anita missed it. Instead, she was home expecting her first child, Ruth, who was due the very same day. Turns out, Ruth may once again keep Anita from this Saturday's royal wedding, too. She is now expecting her third baby, and it's due on the date of Harry and Meghan's wedding. So, But does so, that mean you can't go to the royal wedding? I can't go to the royal wedding, no. You, of all people, can't no, go to the royal I wedding. I can't, so that's two royal weddings I've missed because of my daughter, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> Instead... Anita Atkinson will celebrate in her own way, driving through the countryside in her ever-so-British mini, offering those in her wake her own royal wave. 
It's a Sunday morning in London, and here again is Jane Pauley. We've dropped in on the Church Alarms Pub in Kensington, serving pints since 1750. Winston Churchill's grandparents were regulars, and while it's thriving, it's part of a vanishing breed, as Roxana Sabari now tells us. In the village of Southstoke, outside Bath, the Packhorse Pub has served the community for 150 years. You might say Brian Perkins goes way back. So you were born in this pub? Yes, that's right, in the room upstairs above the lounge here. 87 years ago? That's correct, yes. But six years ago, he and the town got some bad news. When you heard that the pub was going to be closed, what did you think? Well, I was disappointed, obviously. I didn't think in my lifetime I'd see it open again. We thought, well, that's it. That's the end of the line. For more and more pubs across Britain, it's last call. The decline in pubs has been very dramatic. There's, there's no getting away from that. In the last 10 years alone, we've lost 10,000 pubs. Now, we used to have about 65,000. We're getting to a point where we now have 50,000. This is the George Inn. Uh, the building we're in now was built in 1677, which is pretty impressive. Pete Brown has written more than half a dozen books on pubs and beer. Cheers. He says there's a lot at stake here. I think pubs are an essential factor in British life. I think it defines what being British is to some extent. For centuries, pubs have been a place to mingle, (laughs) read a book, and these days even take the kids. The British have a famous reserve when it comes to being sociable. And everything about the pub is micro-engineered to break down those social barriers and to enable people to talk to each other. Now you're comfy because you wanted a chair, didn't you, darling? Roxy Beaujolais, this place fits all types, has presided at her pub, The Seven Stars, for 20 years. Inkeeping is a nurturing career. Do you want some fresh air? I mean, cooking and, and providing victuals and drink for people of good quality is, you know, a great pleasure. It's a great pleasure if they appreciate it. And her regulars do. What do you like about it? Well, it hasn't changed. <laughs> but if pubs aren't changing, Britain is. You've got changing British social habits, people drinking less generally, uh, really steep uh, hikes in taxation, uh, the smoking ban in 2007. To this brew, add real estate. Pub buildings are getting carved up into apartments. That's the fate the Packhorse faced. When a developer announced his plans, the residents were stunned. It was almost the metaphorical pitchfork rebellion. You know, posters went up all over the village and then, you know, around the area, essentially trying to be as loud as possible to say, this just can't happen. And thanks to Dom Morehouse and others, it didn't. Here in England, if a pub is declared an asset of community value, patrons are given time to bid on the property. We were given three months to raise over half a million pounds. <laughs> and they did. So this pub is so important to the community that it actually bought it back. Absolutely. I mean, it's a really unique story. We have now over 430 shareholders. And not only did we raise the half a million plus pounds for the building, we had to raise another equivalent sum of money just to refurbish it. They reopened in March. One, two, 
Brian Perkins poured the first pint. When we visited, the new owners and their kids were savoring their investment. Do you guys want to work here one day? Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. What do you want to do here? Um, anything but the washing up. <laughs> no one in Britain expects all pubs to disappear. The pack horse might just provide a glimpse of their future. I would imagine a lot of people think, well, if they can do it in South Stoke, we should be able to. You can do anything if you try, can't you? Mackay is filling Hyde Park with the sounds of Scotland's signature music. Jonathan Vigliotti tells us about an instrument that mixes tradition with very strong lungs. Every spring when Scotland thaws and roars back to life, another seasonal tune-up begins. May marks the start of bagpiping season. Yes, bagpipers hibernate too. The city of Glasgow's police band is practicing for a summer of competition. And in Edinburgh, the famous castle will soon host hundreds of kilted pipers for the annual military parade. The bagpipe and kilt were both instruments of war dating back centuries. The kilt was used as a uniform, and Piper's haunting cries routinely played troops into battle until after World War I, when more than 500 Pipers were killed. It's an unusual battle cry. Yeah, yeah, but intimidating. Otherwise, he would never have done it. Piper Craig Monroe says that intimidating sound comes from air, compressed through three pipes. Today, bagpipes appear in everything from weddings and funerals to tribute bands like the Red Hot Chili Pipers, in which Monroe plays. Do you ever get people that come up to you and say, I'm so surprised at how cool bagpiping is? The public's perception is an old man in a kilt with a grey beard, um, uh, and it's, it's very much changed now. It really is. When he's not playing the bagpipes, Monroe's making them. Blocks of rare Tanzanian blackwood are shaped, then drilled. The final step is carefully adding decorative details by hand before assembling and testing. Now I need to sit down. You got lightheaded. Bagpipe business has been booming, and Monroe traces it back to 1995, when a movie by the name of Braveheart ignited interest in all things Scottish. Okay, let's see how much we're talking about here. Okay. And that's when kilt maker Robert Matheson says his business expanded too. Are we done yet? No. No. <laughs> There's still more. The traditional kilt is made using eight yards okay, of fabric. Room. Okay, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. 
Today's style is only slightly different from kilts used on ancient battlefields. In those days it was one piece of cloth, a filly bag, which wrapped around the waist and over the shoulder and they would sleep in their kilt as well. It could turn into a sleeping bag if you like. Each kilt comes in 25 distinct tartans, plaits, representing different clans. Today, thousands of patterns are produced in factories around Scotland. Demand comes from all over the world. It wasn't cool to wear the kilt when I was learning the bagpipes. You get made fun of. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, nowadays, it has become very cool. Why has it become so fashionable again? I think people are more conscious of their own identity. So interested, kilts crop up on red carpets and runways. I think I got the legs for a kilt. <laughs> Even on Sunday morning television. Do you wear underwear or not? If you're renting from us, you wear underwear. <laughs> it's a personal preference. What do you think the future is? Do away with trousers altogether. <laughs> so everybody walking down the street in a kilt. Why not? Be good for business. <laughs> It's been said the United States and Britain are two countries divided by a common language, which prompts a few words from our Faith Saley. Hello! Why am I talking like this on the telly in what my four-year-old calls my English accident? Well, because today we're going to have a bit of a primer, or primer, about British English versus American English. American pants are British underwear, unless you're a girl, in which case pants are knickers. Pants is also an insult, as in, that bloke's pants at football, in which case football is soccer. Eggplant is aubergine, dessert is pudding, even if it's not pudding, and a cookie is a biscuit. And if you're pissed, you're drunk. This truck is a lorry. This trunk is a boot. This elevator's a lift. This sweater's a jumper. Do you fancy some fries? Well, they're chips, and chips are crisps. This foil is aluminium. Private school is public school, where they do maths and learn the alphabet from A to Z. There's also an innovative emphasis on syllables. So your steak is a fillet, and Saturday is the weekend. There's something lovely about how the Brits end their sentences with tag questions, isn't there? A study shows that they do this nine times more often than Yanks, don't they? This ginger would be gobsmacked if you don't agree that everything British just sounds brilliant. The English are even aces at insults. Which we wouldn't have if we listened to the muttering idiot sitting opposite me. But if you're using Britishisms to sound smart, just remember smart doesn't mean clever, it means stylish. You may think I sound like a toff, but it's more fun to say loo instead of bathroom. Still, this is not an advert for the superiority of the English. Because in the UK, the very words you use can cement you in a social class. Yes, in America, you might say pop instead of soda and announce you're from the Midwest. But in England, a country where they actually use the descriptors upper class and working class, your social hierarchy is decided in part by whether you say dinner or supper, napkin or serviette, pardon or sorry. When Kate Middleton's mother reportedly said pardon in front of the queen, it made news, negatively. The English aren't crazy about words that make you sound like you're striving. In America, we fancy ourselves a nation of strivers with a melting pot of speech, which makes us richer, doesn't it? So, cheers, or cheers. Keep calm and yammer on.
We're in the West End, London's answer to Broadway. Countless performers call this city their hometown. Among them, Rachel Weiss, who now lives in New York, where Tony DeCopel caught up with her. I have never been on Facebook, like never in my life. I've seen on the subway doing likes. Is likes, is that from Facebook? Rachel Weiss is not exactly what you'd call an oversharer. With your private life, there is a kind of electric fence put up, and if mm -hmm. you get too close, you're zapped. Well, my private life is not mysterious to me. I know exactly what it is. It's just pretty, you know, ordinary. In fact, while I brought plenty of questions for the 48-year-old Academy Award-winning actor, I had to have answers, too. Acting is a, it's a kind of escapism from who you are, but it's also like anthropology. It's Totally. You ask people questions a lot. You're curious. I'm really curious. Like, I would love to interview you. <laughs> and every time we took a break, boy, did she. Is everyone out of jail now? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, everyone's out of jail. Sorry. But these days, there's no hiding for this transplanted English rose. My other favorite nickname for you, I think, is the thinking man's crumpet. <laughs> Do you say crumpet in America? You're going to have to translate. You'd say... Nice bit of ass, but can you say that on television? I don't think we can say that on Sunday morning. <laughs> okay. She's expecting a child with husband Daniel Craig, a.k.a. James Bond. And she's also the star of an acclaimed new film, Disobedience. Do you have to have sex every Friday? It's expected. Medieval. It's not mandatory. About the forbidden intimacy between two women in London's Orthodox Jewish community not far from where Vice herself grew up. They're a very private community, so I never spoke to them and they wouldn't have been interested in speaking to me. I think there's, there's a great mystery around their world. You like mystery, it seems like. Why, mystery's fabulous, no? Don't you like it? Have you been with other women? No. Not really. And speaking of mystery, Vice has one scene in particular with co-star Rachel McAdams, unlike any she's filmed before. Do you still any fancy women? How was the lovemaking scene different or the same from your experience of scenes of a similar sort? Um, or put it, let me put it more succinctly. Mm -hmm. Was it different making a scene with another woman than it would have been with a man? It was... Um much less stubbly with a woman, much softer. That would be the first thing of note. No, I don't think you should leave at all. It was incredibly emotional. It was romantic, it was spiritual, it was passionate, it was full of heart and longing. It wasn't just, it wasn't just sex. It was something much more powerful. The title, Disobedience, is from the novel that inspired the film. Hmm which Vice also produced. But disobedience might as well be the headline over her own life as a self-described outsider who was expelled from her private high school. My mother always used to say, you were asked to leave. How British. Why were you asked to leave? I was very disobedient. I had authority issues, I guess you would say. I didn't understand why teachers had the right to discipline me or tell me what to do. Still, she excelled academically, landing at Cambridge University, where Vice skipped the classics and instead launched an avant-garde performance group, The Talking Tongues. That's her on the right. It launched a career that has swung from B-movie glory... Oh my God, 
God, I hate it when these things do that. Excuse me. To A-list dramas. I just wondered, whose map is Britain using when it completely ignores the United Nations and decides to invade Iraq? To the occasional role as the girl who gets the guy. For me, that just seemed really like an alien concept. But now, she says, marriage suits her. It's home, so wherever my husband is, it, it's home, which is a really lovely thing. I think we can make this. Not that Vice has stopped forging her own path. Jaywalking is not against the law in England. In fact, the word doesn't even exist. Really? As long as you feel like you're not going to die, you cross. With her own film production company, <laughs> LC6, where she's the one in charge. I'm CEO of this space. It's really fancy, and I've got a blazer. <laughs> I like to, to kind of roam in here. And... She plans to focus on more stories told from a clear female point of view. I think it's kind of different being a woman. I like Viva la France. While never giving up on mystery. You're now a woman wearing at least two hats. Yes. Acting, producing. Yes. Good. <laughs> Look at that. Will there be a third? Are we going to see writing? Never say never. I haven't got anything brewing. The hats are going to keep stacking. I haven't got anything brewing at the moment, but you never know. Like. <laughs> I'm Jane Pauley. I hope you've enjoyed our visit to London and that you'll join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. There's no place like London There's no place at all